Welcome back to the Starting Over Stronger show. I am excited today to have a conversation with Sandy Kirkham. She is the author of a book titled Let Me Pray Upon You. And she is a survivor of a minister's sexual abuse from when she was a teenager. And her book is her story and her calling to share with others about the damage that is done. And so much depth here. It's just incredible. She's spoken on councils and before the Ohio Senate in a Maryland court. She's appeared on a local television show in Boston. And her story, Stolen Innocence, was told in a documentary produced by The Hope of Survivors. She is actively working with survivors to conduct victim support conferences and to participate in panels to uh, share her perspective on this subject. So if you you have this experience in your past, or maybe you're involved in a church today that you believe is victimizing you or re-victimizing you because of a situation in your past or present, you're going to get a lot out of today's story. And I want to say I don't often do trigger warnings because there's, um, you know, we cover a lot of really deep stuff on this show all the time. So I feel like I'd have to do one for every single show. But, but especially today, I guess I do want to let you know, going into it that we are going to be talking about sexual abuse uh, by someone in church leadership. And there's a little bit of detail that's going to come out during the story. And I want to make sure that you're aware of that. So you're prepared for it, if that is something that you feel might trigger you. If not, then I hope you will join us. And I know you'll get a lot out of Sandy's story. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Starting Over Stronger Show, where you'll find help and hope for your divorce survival and recovery. Divorce well, live well. Today, we have a special guest named Sandy Kirkham, and she is here to tell her story and talk about her book. So thank you for being here today on the show. Well, thank you. I'm glad to have the opportunity. Yeah. Well, tell us a little bit about who Sandy is and what you have to share with us about your life and this book that you have written. Um, I'm Sandy Phillips Kirkham. I live in Cincinnati, Ohio, lived here all my life. I'm married with two lovely children and two perfect granddaughters. And two fairly way where, well, my dogs are fairly well behaved, I should say. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I'm a nurse, registered nurse. I've been retired for a few years and I enjoy life. Um, my story is one of clergy abuse at the age of 16. And I wrote a book called uh, Let Me Pray Upon You that details not only the abuse, but the aftermath and the trauma that was caused for the next 27 years of my life before I was able to talk about it. I spent 27 years keeping it a secret. And it was um, a trigger that forced me to kind of deal with my past. And then I began um, sharing my story. And it came to a point that I thought my story was important enough and powerful enough that I should really write a book. 
And that's what why the, the reason I wrote the book. Right. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for your, your courage and sharing that through your book and here with me today. And, and I'm excited. I've read just pieces and parts of it so far, and I'm definitely looking forward to reading the entire thing at some point as well. But I want to just, you know, have a conversation today here with our listeners because I want them to know what they can do if they're faced with or, um, you know, currently facing an abuse situation by someone church leadership, even if that abuse isn't sexual, um, if it's being downplayed or perpetuated by someone in a church leadership position, that then becomes spiritual abuse because we believe we should do certain things because God. And uh, we put words in God's mouth and and, uh, I could get on a soapbox, but (laughs) we will start with, um, I just have to wonder, I, I considered as I was reading your book, whether or not you ever thought about writing under a pseudonym or um, if you used actual names or not and how those kinds of decisions were made. Um, I decided to tell my story with my own name and I did change a few of the names. Um, I changed the name of the church where this occurred because they were eventually willing to let me come back and have a meeting with them. And graciously, I mean, I wanted the truth to be known and they were willing to let me come and tell that truth. And I also knew that this happened in 1972, 73, 74, 75, 76. It went on for five years. And so it it happened so long ago that I knew that if anyone were to Google that church now, if I used their name, then it could pop up again. And I didn't think that stain necessarily belonged on them all that time. So I did change the name of the church. I also did not use his name. And I did that for a couple of reasons. When I first started talking about my abuse, I wanted my story to be heard. And I was so afraid that if I used his name, people would see me as looking for revenge or that I had a hateful purpose. I wanted to be able to tell my story without someone questioning my motives. And so I thought the best way to do that was not to use his name. I also didn't use his name because I have since reconnected with his ex-wife and they have three children together. And she had asked me if I would not use his name. And I felt that she had been, if you read the book, you'll see um, she'd been through enough pain. And this had, of course, caused great pain to his children. And I didn't feel by adding to that was worthy of what I wanted to do. And so I've been probably criticized for not using his name, that I'm somehow protecting him. But again, if you read the book, you will see that I exposed him to his church leaders. I went to his denominational leaders. I wrote letters to any of the churches that he continued to preach in. So it wasn't as if I was hiding him completely. But I think for the book, I decided that I would not use his name. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense, you know, that that it could look like a personal vendetta or something if if you were to use his name. And so thank you for sharing that. That was just kind of a personal curiosity of mine yeah. as I as I began to read it. And and I want everyone that's listening to pick up a copy of your book, and it is called Let Me Pray Upon You, uh, Breaking Free from a Minister's Sexual Abuse. And I want them to hear your whole story because I, for one, am just amazed at the level of detail of your story and your ability to recall things that must have happened, what, 45, 50 mm-hmm. years ago? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So. I guess tell me how that is. How did did you did you keep records? Did you do you just have an excellent memory? <laughs> well, the older I get, the less my memory is accurate. However, <laughs> I'm a hoarder, so I kept lots of the church newsletters. I kept all kinds of information on things. But the thing about trauma, you don't forget certain things, no matter how many years go by. And so there were things that 
to this moment, I, if I were to recall them, I can recall detail, you know, the smell in the room, the, the people in the room at the time or whatever the situation is. Victims can recall with much clarity things that happened to them in a traumatic way. So that's one thing. The other thing is when I kept this secret for 27 years, that forced me to continually remember the past because every time I had a trigger, I had to figure out how to stop that trigger factor. And so I was constantly remembering him and the situation because I was holding it all in. And I found that controlling the secret wasn't really what I was doing. The secret was controlling me. And so to remember details was was fairly easy. Now, to write them down and to share those personal details, that was more difficult. Um, I'm not sure what sections of the book you had read, but there's some very personal things that happened that I describe in the book and things that he had done to me. And I remember um, watching the movie Spotlight. I don't know if you know that movie, but it's the movie of the clergy abuse in the Catholic Church. It mm-hmm. won an Academy Award. It's called Spotlight. Highly recommended. At any rate, one of the um, reporters from the Boston Globe was interviewing a, an abuse victim. And he continually said, I was abused by a priest. I was abused. And she looked at him and she said, I need details. Because abuse in general doesn't really describe what was done to you. And so when I was writing the book, I kind of remembered that and thought, I can't just say that I was sexually abused. It won't paint enough clear of a picture for my readers to understand the trauma and the physical abuse and the emotional abuse that this man put upon me. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm sure that was not easy. And, you know, it's interesting. I think trauma does different things to different people because uh, certainly it sounds like your experience was that it, that you remembered every detail and others, you know, seem to block out a lot, right. you know, whole sections and times yes. of time periods of their life. So, you know, you just never know what the brain is going to do to try to protect you. But today, I wondered if you'd just start by just telling us the the short version of uh, this part of your story, what transpired, how it resolved, and what you would like others to get out of reading your book or hearing your story. Well, first, I think it's important to, to describe where I was in my church life and spiritually. I started okay. attending church when I was eight. My parents did not attend church And so I went with a neighbor up the street and I fell in love with church. I loved going to church camp, Bible school, everything about it I loved. As I got older, I began to teach Sunday school. I sang in the choir. I was baptized when I was 13. My faith was really growing and I was just happy to be a part of the church. After I turned 16, our church had a new youth pastor and he was different than any other pastor we'd ever seen. He was charismatic. He had dynamic sermons. He was 30 and married with two children, but he really acted more like the kids. He drove a convertible. He wore cut off jeans. He had sideburns. So like in the 70s, you would call him hip. And everyone loved this man. He was treated like a rock star. So when he would ask people to do something for him, they felt honored. And because I was so active in the church when he arrived, it was to no one's surprise that he tapped into me to be one of the leaders. And so he continually told me how much he needed me in the ministry and how grateful he was that I was helping in the church. And it was one night at a youth group meeting at my house. Um, He waited for everyone to leave. And then he stopped me in my hallway, began telling me how wonderful I was and how appreciative was of me. And of course, I'm thrilled. I I like the attention. And he all of a sudden just bent down and he kissed me. And I kind of remember thinking, I think he just kissed me, but this is the pastor. He wouldn't be doing anything he shouldn't be doing. And maybe it's just his way of showing appreciation. I didn't know how to process it. So I just kind of accepted it and let it go. I babysat for his family. She worked evenings. 
So that's kind of gave him the perfect opportunity to be alone with me four or five times a week. We would sit and talk about the Bible. He would give me books to read on spirituality, you know, really tapping into my trust in him as my pastor. And so the kissing and the hugging would continue. And sometimes it came a little more than just a simple kiss, but that's the way that continued for a year. That, that was the grooming process. He was gaining my trust even more of certainly, again, I was the attention I liked, but it was just kissing. So I didn't, I didn't think anything of it. I let it go until one night he um, took me into the living room. He put me on the floor. He began undressing me. And I was absolutely stunned and I froze. I was frozen. I didn't know what to do. I just laid there. And he eventually took me upstairs where um, he had sex with me. And from that point on, I, I knew this was wrong. And I also knew that it was something we shouldn't be doing. But he then reminded me that no one can ever find out. If I did tell anyone, they weren't going to believe me. And if I did tell anyone and they believed me, I would be in responsible for the ruination of his ministry. And of course, this church loved him. And I just felt that I had to keep the secret. And so um, that's what I did. As the relationship continued, he became violent. Uh, The sex became more deviant. It was not a caring, loving relationship in any way. Um, And I just felt trapped. I felt like I was in a black hole with no way out. And I felt like I could tell no one. And this abuse went on for five years. Early on, I tried to get out of the relationship, but he would always go back to, you need to stay with me, and this is God's will. We're married in God's eyes. This is what you are meant to do. And of course, again, at being 16, 17 years old, I'm in this confusing state. And again, I I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't know I could tell anyone, so I had to accept that it was the way it was. So after a while, I just accepted the relationship, and I didn't even make any attempt to get out of it. And I knew it would only be over when he said it was over. Um, he was caught. A couple of the people in the church became suspicious of this behavior, followed him one night and found us. And he was called in to the elders. I was not. I don't know what he told them. I don't know what questions he was asked. I was never asked any questions. I was simply told where I was to sit in church, how I was to pay, behave. If someone asked me a question, I was to direct it to them. I was not to tell anyone, including my parents. All this was an effort to keep it a secret and move him to the next church, which they eventually did. Um, Shortly after he was moved to the next church, I was called in by the elders and told because of my behavior, I was to leave the church. I was devastated. It was the only church I knew, and I loved that church. And I believed that they forgave him, that why couldn't I be forgiven? But I wasn't. I was told to leave the church. And that probably affected me more, the response of that church in many ways. It certainly affected my spiritual life many years later than the actual abuse did. And that was the end. And I never went back to church and I floundered for a few years and then I met my husband. And so that's kind of it in a nutshell. Wow. That's a lot. Thank you again for for sharing. I I can't even imagine how much that had to have altered uh, your life, your mind, your, the course of your life. It sounds like, um, you were blessed to find someone um, amazing to marry, and and you built a family and and overcame. But even so, it it uh, could not well, have I, been easy, you know. And I did. I mean, on the outside, my life was perfect, and it was in, in many many ways. It was perfect. I had two great kids. I had a wonderful husband. But when you're carrying a deep dark secret like that, mm-hmm. it takes away some of the joy that you're sharing in that life that you're supposed to have, and it, it it's exhausting because I always worried someone would find out, someone would 
you know, I felt like I was this imposter that people saw me one way, but in my mind, if they really knew who I was, I'd had an affair with a married man who was my pastor and I'd been kicked out of a church and my spiritual life was non-existent. I was someone who read my Bible every day. I love going to church. Now church was a place of conflict and pain for me. It was no longer a place of joy. And I had this disconnect with God that I, I didn't want to have, but I didn't know how to fix it. Um, it, it was a difficult 27 years to have to live my life that way. Mm-hmm. And keeping something secret from your husband, that's never a good thing. You know, yeah. it's not a good thing. And so, yes, it was, I appeared to be okay. Um, and I was in many ways, but in a lot of ways, I was not. Yeah. I was suffering. Right. Well, on some level, although not that deep of a level, I can imagine, um, you know, the the... The story that you're telling is a story of betrayal and pain from one of the places on this earth that we should feel the most safe. And um, in your book on page 43, you had a quote from Diane Langberg that says, whenever power is used in a way that wounds the vulnerable or that exploits trust, abuse has occurred. And I think by that definition, which I totally agree with, I definitely have faced what you have on on a different level. And in previous episodes of the Starting Over Stronger show, we have talked about the damage that can be done by insidious people inside of churches. And I've spoken of spiritual abuse that I myself have endured. And I have had more than one guest on the show tell their story of leaving a toxic or abusive marriage in which their church in some way facilitated or perpetuated the emotional, verbal, psychological, or financial abuse that was going on. And I I can't really say for sure that there aren't good churches out there. It's just never been my experience. And so, I was actually recently asked what church I attend, and, and I sat and thought of it for a while as others around the room shared where they went. And I, and I finally arrived at saying, I'm currently attending the smallest church that I ever have. It's in my living room. It's just me and God. It's yeah. going very well. Yeah. I do occasionally have squabbles with other members in the church, but we always resolve them well. (laughs) And in all seriousness, I truly feel closer to God than I ever have. And I continue to pray and seek Him in my everyday life. And and He and I, in in fact, have spoken a lot about this, in fact, because He's the reason that I am as vocal as I am about the damage that some churches are doing, either intentionally or not, because I myself have had three incidents in this um, life-altering and devastating way like you have described. And uh, without getting into the details of that, there was a lot of unlearning and unbrainwashing that had to happen in in all of those situations. And um, going back to church at all became difficult and and, and at times impossible. And, and, And so there's a lot that goes into that. But I have to wonder... You said on, I think, in agreement with what I'm sharing here, that on the back of your book, you you mentioned tragically, church can become a great place of harm, and, or a place of great harm, I mean. And elsewhere in your book, you shared an anonymous quote that I think sums it up well. The saddest thing about betrayal is that it never comes from your enemies. Mm-hmm. Betrayal is betrayal, whether it's sexual, emotional, spiritual. Is your divorce feeling like an uphill battle? Maybe you've put off filing, even though you know that's what needs to happen because you're afraid of how you're going to make it work. Do you struggle with knowing you need more help than what you're getting, but feeling stuck because you don't think you can afford to get the help you need? What if I told you that you can't afford not to? 
As a certified divorce and life transition coach, my private coaching clients were asking themselves all of these same questions, and they're now finding clarity and confidence through the one-on-one support with someone who's been there and on the road to recovery for over a decade. And better yet, they're saving time, stress, and money on their divorce. In your six-month private coaching program, you will get at least two full one-hour sessions per month by phone or Zoom. We can even meet in person for Kansas City local clients who wish or when there's a need. You also have unlimited access to text and email me with urgent concerns. This is everyone's favorite service because we all know divorce doesn't happen from 9 to 5 Monday through Friday. You will also get access to an e-drive full of personal development tools and worksheets on boundaries, personal responsibility, taking the high road, conflict resolution, life assessment, and much more. And you'll love my free app, which includes the names, phone numbers, and email addresses of every divorce professional and home expert that I know, like, and trust. You no longer have to worry about who you can trust to help you as you make decisions and changes throughout your divorce. Simply go to startingoverstronger.com and book a free discovery call. I look forward to meeting you, understanding your concerns, and sharing how coaching will help So talk to us a little bit about where you are now spiritually after everything that you went through. Well, I'm kind of in the same camp that you're in. I still have difficulty with church. I did attend church through those years because I wanted my children to have that experience. And again, I had, I didn't see as abuse at the time that those 27 years, I really did see is that I had cooperated. I consented to this with a married man. So for me, I I did not recognize an abuse until I had that trigger factor, which I describe in the first chapter of my book. And it was then that I became enlightened that I thought, no, this was not right. What he did to me was abuse. So um, for 27 years, when I would attend church, I blocked everything out. When the prayer started, I go over my grocery list. I didn't listen to any prayers. I never closed my eyes. I walked past a minister's office every Sunday morning and got a knot in my stomach for 27 years. And that's just how I functioned. I just knew, okay, I'm going to see this office and I'm going to get a knot and then it'll be gone. So that's how I was for for that 27 years. And then once I was able to understand what was done to me, I recognized this was not something that God participated in. In fact, he was just as angry about what was done to me as I was. And he Yes. He talks about the wolves in sheep's clothing. He talks about beware of those who come as ravenous wolves. And that's what these men and sometimes women are. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. They are pretending to be someone who cares about you in order to trap you, in order to devour you. And so I once I recognized that this was not something that God participated in, but I don't have the same trust. I think there's a lack. I, I'm a little more... Um, I say red flags when I'm around church or around anyone who is professing to be a clergy person. That's mm-hmm. not to mean I'm, I distrust them completely. I'm just not as trusting. I don't trust as much as I used to. And I think that's a normal reaction. And I think God understands that. I once had a victim say to me, well, what if you don't believe in God anymore? She was abused by a priest. And I said to her, that's okay. I think God is a big enough God and he understands what was done to you and he gets it and that's okay. I, I and I believe that. I, I, I her trauma was so great um, that that's where it landed her. And I think God gets that. So spiritually, you know, I think I'm in a good place. Um, 
I do read the Bible again, but I will not allow anyone to say to me, well, the Bible says that that's a trigger for me. I mean, Uh I just put my back up against the wall. Don't tell me what you think the Bible says, because that's how he, you know, was able to abuse me for so long. He continually Mm -hmm. told me this is what the Bible says and that the Bible says we're married in God's eyes. You know, no, that wasn't in the Bible. You know, yeah. but so that's kind of, I think if that answers your question um, yeah, a little bit about does. where I am, but there are deep spiritual wounds that occur when you've been abused by clergy, the, the church becomes contaminated for you. It just mm-hmm. becomes a place that is a reminder of all that, ha- at least for me, it was a reminder. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I think, you know, church is a very loaded word for me. I, and I know a lot of wonderful Christian people. Um, and I don't know if I'll ever go back to church. Um, I just know that I'm actively working on my relationship with God always. And, and I, and I'm just learning very slowly. I think it takes years to reframe everything that has happened in three different traumatic church experiences in my life, you know, just to kind of acclimate that with what I know of good Christian people. And it's a lot to unpack. And I also know that many people who are wounded in the church do blame God and never return to organized religion per se, and maybe never again believe in God. And I, I've never felt that. I, I have always, as you said, and I, th- I was touched when you said that, you know, you you never saw that God was the, was the one to blame for any of this. You thought if if this is hurting me, it must be hurting my God. Mm-hmm. And 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 I I feel I've said the exact same thing many times. Yeah. I it has to grieve his heart because I know that's not what he intended for his people. And so one of the m- most important things are things that touched me the most um, in your book was in the epilogue about using his name. You said that your story shows how a charismatic leader and a church full of such people can thwart the word of God and create massive harm. And you also referred to how church elders hide and will, I, I'll add anyway, sometimes will minimize the sinful actions of others to save the perpetrators or the pastors themselves' reputations while yes. removing the victims yeah. completely, which is was your situation, or I would say even leaving them feeling ostracized from the church or uncomfortable staying, even if they wanted to or could. And um, you also stated, and I agree that they deserve to be outed. It's not about revenge. It's not about a personal vendetta. For me, it's just about complete authenticity and transparency being the right thing to do. And in your case, you stated that some of these people were no longer living, so you saw no benefit to visiting the sins of the fathers and the children. And I just think that shows an incredible amount of wisdom and grace on your part. But I also think what's important about these statements is that whether the abuse was like yours, sexual in nature, or whether it was more along the lines of what myself and many of my listeners have encountered with patriarchal distortions of the word of God, where emotional, verbal, and financial abuse are occurring and being swept under the rug. It's basically re-victimizing victims by telling them that they're not really victims or that they just need to pray more or be more submissive or that it's somehow their own fault 
forgiveness. They need to forgive. That's the, other, yeah, the yes, yeah. that's the big thing to me. Mm-hmm. That's, that's kind of where I'm leading up to is forgiveness was used as a weapon right. on myself and my family when something came to light and we were chastised for not being more forgiving right? because we didn't agree with sweeping sin under the rug because of the devastation to the victim. And as I said, it's just simply not right. For, for it to be handled that way. And so it's no wonder that some people leave churches and never return, you know? No one, no victim, whether, and I agree with you, emotional abuse, because I mean, his emotional abuse to me probably had more damage than the actual sexual abuse itself. I mean, you know, the things he would say to me and the gaslighting that he used on me really did stay with me for the rest of my life. You know, I never, I was never pretty enough. I was never smart enough. I was, you know, all of these things that he kept telling me that I wasn't. And, you know, it took me, like you said, years to unravel. And But no victim should ever be told to forgive, and no victim should ever be told how they should tell their story and what they want to say into their story. It's it's our story to tell. And forgiveness does not mean silence. I've had some people say to me, well, I don't know that you have really forgiven because you keep talking about this. Well, forgiveness does not equal silence. To me, forgiveness was unburdening myself from this past and my, this abuser, it was, for me, it was saying, I'm going to let go and let God take this over because I want to live the life that I was meant to live. And I can't live that life as long as I'm harboring hate. And I mean, I, for two years, I I hated this man. I could not get him out of my mind. And it wasn't until I said, okay, I'm going to just let him go and let this go because I don't want him in my life anymore. I want to live the life I was meant to live. Now, that wasn't easy. And I still have moments when it comes back to me. But And that doesn't work for everyone. I have a, a very dear friend, and he was abused by a priest. And he has said, I will never forgive. I will hate that man till the day I die. That's his story. That's his journey. And I don't have a right or a place to say to him, no, that's not that's not helpful. And maybe it's not, but it's not my place. He needs to come to that decision on his own. Um, I I do tell victims that, I mean, for 27 years, I lived with guilt and shame, and that was crippling. And then after I acknowledged the abuse, I lived with hatred for for that time. And, And that was just as crippling. So it wasn't working for me. And that's how I finally came. You know, I could wake up every morning and hate this man. Do you think he wakes up every morning thinking of me? No. So... I was giving away my life and my time to him by mm-hmm. thinking about him and having this hatred in my heart. So yeah. um, that's that worked for me. It doesn't work for everyone. Um, but I also think it helps victims to know that whatever was done to you was not your fault. It took me a long time to keep from saying to myself more than once, yeah, well, it sort of was my fault because I didn't do this, or I should have said this, or I should have said no, or why didn't I do this? Absolutely not. I responded in the way, as most victims do, with the coping skills that I had at the time and and the vulnerability where I was at that time. I was in an emotional, vulnerable state. I was a young teenage girl. So my coping skills were lacking in the ability to say no to this man who I looked up to, who had the last year been a great friend to me, had shown that he cared for me. And now I was supposed to stand up to him and say no. It, it wasn't in my capabilities to be able to do that. So victims need to understand whatever was done to you was not your fault. You were targeted. You were chosen for your vulnerabilities. You were chosen because he knew that he could get to you for whatever reason. And you need to understand that. Yeah, yeah it is just unfortunate because I do, like I said, I do truly believe that there are good people in the in churches 
and certainly good things are happening uh, in churches, but there are also, like you said, wolves in sheep's clothing. There are people who are using the church and the teachings of the Bible to exploit other people in in myriad ways, and right. um, you know, it's it's often reaping lifelong damage. And the thing about forgiveness is that it's just part of a process. And that process begins with acknowledgement and if possible amends. And so to be telling somebody that they should be forgiving when there's been no acknowledgement, there's been no restitution, there's been no amends, there's been, you know, nothing other than a weak, a weak apology of, I'm sorry. That's usually all you get. Yeah. If that, that, that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And and honestly, truly, even if with that and, and with the course of time that often is required, forgiveness is just acceptance. It's not yes. you're not saying that it was okay. You're just no. saying it happened. And yeah. and for and whatever reason it. it happened, I can't change it. I can only just learn from it. I can look back and go, you know, because that happened, I am here. This is right. who I am. I have this new strength or this new wisdom, or I can do something with this terrible thing that never should have happened. And I think that's really where a lot of people get lost in the weeds on forgiveness of just feeling like they're they're saying it's okay. And of yeah. course you're not. It's and not for okay. me. The other thing I think for me was I kept thinking if, if I say that I forgive Give him, I was being unfaithful to my pain. I was almost saying, Oh, I forgive him. It's okay. It's over. It didn't matter. When in reality, that pain was still there. And so I, I, I had to come to a point where I realized that didn't mean that I still didn't recognize the pain and the damage done. It didn't mean, like you said, that it was okay or no big deal. Mm-hmm. It was a big deal. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, but I, I, I am at a place where I feel at peace. I'm, I'm, I've made peace with my past. Yeah. And, you know, I have to say the person or persons who say to you that that maybe you haven't forgiven because you keep talking about it, um, just that to me, just instantly when you said that, that's somebody that is uncomfortable with with the topic and they're just trying to shut you up because they don't want to hear about it. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to think about it because it makes them really uncomfortable. And in your reflection on page 219 in your book, you stated uh, something that resonated very deeply with me. And I think this is the perfect place for us to talk about it. And that is with the healing came my passion and my need to speak out. I began to understand my story could have an impact. Over the years, the same suggestion came from many of my friends, and I can so relate to that period where, you know, just I or to that, (laughs) there just is so much to unpack there. I mean, when you have a calling on your life to use something devastating in a way to bring healing to others, you can't shut up about it. No, Mm -mm. you literally can't. You could try. You could try for 27 years. And and God or the universe or whatever you want to call it is going to be like, no, there's work to be done here. There are other people who have dealt with this. <laughs> well, the funny thing about that is, is I, I, in the book, I talk about this too, but I actually hired a private investigator and found him 27 years later and confronted him. And in my mind, um, I thought I'm going to meet this man. And for once and for all, I'm going to finally tell him, I get what you did to me. You had no right to do it. It was wrong. And, and once I did that, I'm done. I can move on. I'm done. And, and to to your point, I just felt this need that I wasn't done. That was just 
the beginning of my healing in order to help others heal. And the, you know, the Bible verse of God comforts us so that we may comfort others. I mean, there was a purpose in my pain and I needed, and whether I helped one, a hundred, a thousand people, I'll never know. But all I know is that by telling my story and talking about this not only helps victims, but I'm hoping that it will shed light on clergy abuse and what it is. And it's not just a moral fall. It's not just a man who sinned or it's not someone who just had an affair. It's not an affair. It's sexual misconduct. And it's a it's a professional violation. It's not just a moral violation. They, they broke the ethics of their profession and they are to be removed. They've lost that privilege of ministry by their own actions. Um, a psychiatrist, uh, any professional having sex with anyone under his care loses his license. Yeah, and that should be true with clergy, and it's not. We wow. we're, we're not there yet. There are only thirteen states where a clergy person counseling someone in his care, if caught having sex with that person, loses his clergy license. Only thirteen states. So oh any gosh. other state, it's considered consensual. Now, of course, if it's a minor, that's a different story. But a, a teenage girl or someone who's eighteen, an adult woman. They can legally have sex with their the person they're counseling without any consequences, and that's not true. You know, any other profession, that's not true. And and that's we crazy. And it is crazy, but that's the truth. Thirteen states. Wow, I did yeah. not know that. Yeah, and so we need to. So I think that's where churches fail in a lot of ways. They fail, but one of the ways they fail is to see it only as a moral obligation of failure. That. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. We shouldn't judge. And God forgave you, so you should forgive him. They see that. But the other side is the moral side of it. The, I mean, the uh, professional side of it. They took an oath and they have broken the ethics of their profession. Just like a stockbroker who does inside trading, he loses his license. As a nurse, I'm going to lose my license if I... I'm caught stealing narcotics. Doesn't mean I can't be forgiven. Doesn't mean that I'm a bad person all the way around. But it mm-hmm. does mean... By my own actions, I've lost that privilege in my profession. And it's yeah. and it should be that way for clergy as well. And I Absolutely. want to reiterate, there are, are many, many pastors, and I know of several, who are good, God-fearing people who are, they, they stay within the boundaries of the profession, and they're good people. But we have to deal with the ones who are out there that aren't. And unfortunately, I think there are more of them than most people want to recognize. Yeah, I think you're right. And, and you know, you keep saying that it's more than moral. It's also a professional failure, but it goes even deeper. I mean, it's spiritual mm-hmm. abuse. And to me, that is somehow like this really deeper even layer than all of it, because you know, emotional abuse, you can, you can heal in therapy, physical abuse, you know, I mean, obviously the bruises fade and and the, and the memories fade over time, hopefully, but, but when you spiritually abuse someone, you, you know, you alter the course of their life. Yes. I mean, there's just something so deep about that to me. Well, it's one of the most sacred parts of our being. They they touch the sacred part of our soul and they take, they take, the most important aspect of our lives. It's not about, you know, church attendance and taking communion. It's who we are. It's who we see ourselves spiritually. And when that is damaged, it takes away part of our soul. And it then requires us to figure out who we are spiritually. And we have to navigate through all of that, like you say, to unpack it all. And so I agree it, it spiritually, that's what makes clergy abuse so much more insidious in the sense that, you know, if I need help, 
I can't go to my church any longer. You know, where do I turn when the, when the pain and the hurt has occurred in the church? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you getting the support you need as you divorce or face the possibility of divorce? Did you know that for just $55 a month, you can be a part of a one hour weekly support group call of people just like you? Some haven't even filed yet, but they know the marriage is not sustainable or healthy. Some were served papers they didn't want. Others are feeling empowered that they finally took the reins of their life and hired an attorney and a divorce coach to help them navigate the uncertain waters of divorce. All of them are facing fear, grief, loss, confusion, and pain, and they're finding help and hope in a Starting Over Stronger support group. You can get registered today for a group at startingoverstronger.com slash groups and start this week in getting the help you need to divorce well and then live well. Remember, divorce is hard. Life after doesn't have to be, but the support you get now is what makes the difference. Do you have any resources that helped you, um, books that you've read or leaders that you follow on the subject of spiritual abuse? Well, uh, you quoted Diane Langberg. She is absolutely excellent. She is spot on with so many of her writings and her speeches. You can you can Google her and find her on YouTube. So her name is Diane Langberg. I also, um, Marie Fortune, she wrote a book called Is Nothing Sacred? It, I have a bibliography in the back of my book, but that's one of them. She wrote a book about a minister who was having multiple uh, sex with uh, several of the women in the church at the same time. Mm. It's an excellent book. And then she talks about, you know, the grooming, the manipulation, the gaslighting. Um, The other book is called um, From Victim to Survivor. And that is a book of short stories of each victim's um, story of abuse. Okay. So those are all on Amazon. My book is also on Amazon. Um, And part of the other reason I wrote the book, as I said earlier, I wanted to educate people on clergy abuse. I want people to understand how grooming and manipulation and gaslighting works and that these men and sometimes women are manipulative and they're not to be trusted. And, you know, they're very good at grooming and manipulating an entire congregation so that when they are caught, they have a way of fooling those same congregants into believing that they're, they didn't mean it and they're sorry and that, you know, they'll never do it again. Yeah. You know, interestingly enough, my abuser was also accused of having um, inappropriate relationships with a young teenager in his first church prior to coming to our church. And our elders knew it when they hired him. Oh, wow. And they didn't let anyone know in the congregation. He was confronted. He's promised he'd never do it again, uh, said he was sorry. And within six months, he was kissing me in my hallway. Yeah. Wow. Well, it's really, I mean, it's, it's mind control and, it is. you know, coercive persuasion, thought, <laughs> thought reform, you, you name it's brainwashing. it. Uh, it's yeah, brainwashing. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, interestingly enough, I actually just recorded an episode for my show on gaslighting and breaking it down what it is. Cause I get asked that a lot and, mm-hmm. and, um, 
Well, I will say there were two books and, and in my situation, because it was less of a sexual nature, I think the, these, the books that I'm going to mention are more um, aimed at somebody who maybe come out of a cult or a cult-like okay. experience. Um, I was involved in a small legalistic Baptist church that um, the pastor was a charismatic leader that, you know, was very capable and able to persuade many, many, many people to his way of thinking and twisting the, the word of God. And, and, uh, I was there for five years and it was the most um, mind altering five years of my life. Um, I knew from before I ever even went that it was, there was something wrong there. My, my, my former husband insisted we go and I didn't want to go, but eventually almost got in. I mean, I did get indoctrinated into it and then had to fight my way back out of it. But um, two very, very important books that helped me during that time, that time of recovery after that was, the subtle power of spiritual abuse. I read um, that book. I love uh, that book. That's right, and written by David Johnson yep. and Jeff Van Vonderen. And then the other one, I would say even more so, was called Toxic Faith: okay. Experiencing Healing from Painful Spiritual Abuse, and it is written by Stephen Arterburn and Jack Felton. Unbelievable! I read okay. that book, okay. and I was just like. Oh my gosh, these people were in that little small legalistic Baptist church with me yeah. because they just described all these little nuances that how could they have known? You know, yeah. it was like, I don't, it's crazy to me. Didn't you find that by educating yourself and learning those things that that was the start of your oh, of yeah. being up and healing? Because that's what's so empowering. For me was all yeah. of a sudden I'm learning what was these terms and I'm and I'm seeing these examples and I'm thinking that's exactly what happened to me and so it was so freeing to be able to see and hear someone describe exactly what was being done to me I yeah. agree yeah yeah it's it's crazy to me um, most of my work in divorce is with women who are leaving toxic or abusive situations they're married to narcissistic controlling mm-hmm. manipulative people and I say to them all the time it is as if there is a textbook out there somewhere on how yes. to be a narcissist yes. because they all do the same damn they do. things they do it's crazy it's just it insane how scripted it all is and yet how blind we are to it when we're yeah. in the middle of it well, and right. how difficult it is to find our fight our way out of it and even to understand it you know so so yeah wow that's and I don't crazy think people understand once you are so trapped in this relationship how difficult it is to get out and i tell people just because there is a way out doesn't mean you see that way out and because yeah. people would say well couldn't you have told someone i said no for me, there was no one to tell. And of course, like I said, with him reminding me that I couldn't tell anyone and it had to be our secret. And I and I, I think too, this might be hard for some people to understand, but victims also want to protect their abusers sometimes. And in yes. many ways, I wanted to protect him because you know, he was someone that I cared about and everyone in this church loved him. So I saw it as I'm the one that must have something wrong with me because I can't make him happy. Or mm-hmm. if there's a problem in this relationship, it's because of me. Yeah. And he clearly would just make sure I understood that because many times he would say to me, you know, I'm not happy because you don't know how to love me. People well, people yeah, question protect. how yeah. you, how you stay, why right. you stay, you know, that yes. that's, that's a common thing that people yes. do. And, and what, what do you, how do you deal with that? What do you say to them? Well, I go back to the point of how vulnerable I was. And, and like you said, the techniques and the tools they use are very textbook. And so um, once I was in, there, there, you just don't see a way out. And I think the thought of the fear of leaving and what would happen 
was more of a deterrent than what if I just stayed and just accepted it. And once you accept a relationship and once you accept you're being physically or emotionally abused, once you accept it, you don't, you stop trying to find a way out. You're, you, you know, you stop trying, you just say, this is my life and I will make the best of it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, There's a couple of things that came to mind as you were talking to one was um, I often say you can't see red flags when you're wearing rose colored glasses. (laughs) Yeah, that's very true. And, and, you know, the other thing is that um, when you're a very empathic person, you see the good in everyone Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. you, you truly believe that everyone wants what's best in any given situation, wants what's best for you, wants what's best, what's right, you know, yep. what's moral, what's just. And and so if whatever you're experiencing doesn't match that, then you rationalize in your mind that they're just struggling and we just right. need to stick it out and make it and we'll fix it somehow. And they also know that when you they push you to the brink, they will give you a carrot to hang out there and start to be that kind person that you once knew in the beginning and bring you back in and suck you back in. And then you, you know, you think, oh, I feel bad that I thought this about him. And yes, he is a nice person and he is kind to me. I would never say that he was ever loving to me, but when he knew that I was at the edge and I couldn't do this anymore, he would come back to how much he cared for me and how much he'd been helping me. And, you know, he played the guilt thing. And, you know, another thing about staying is um, Susan Forward uses the acronym FOG. FOG. And mm-hmm. she say, victims stay out of fear, obligation, and guilt. Mm-hmm. And, and those three things are so powerful in a victim's psychic and in their mind that fear, obligation, and guilt keep us in the relationship. Yeah. And it's a perfect analogy because it truly is a fog that you can't see yes. out of. You can't see your way out of. You don't, you don't know how to get out of. And it's so easy for somebody that's never been in it to say, why didn't you just leave? Right. And it's right. it's honestly one of the most painful and dismissive things that you can say to someone who has been or is still stuck in a situation of abuse. So Thank you so much for for bringing that up because I think that's a really important point. You know, it, I thought it was interesting, and I'll and I'll kind of close this out on this, and then let you share whatever else you might like to. But you mentioned in your uh, reflection on page two nineteen that that you found it very comfortable to talk with large crowds of people and see their faces as you spoke and and shared your story, but but you struggled with writing a book that seemed scarier to you, and it's interesting to me because I'm the exact opposite. <laughs> I I am working on writing my book and 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 I'm being asked to speak and it just makes me crazy nervous every single time. Why do you think you found it easier to speak in front of crowds? I mean that's like what the number one fear of of humans. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, like I said I was always active in the church and up in front of the church at times. So I started in an early age that I felt very comfortable in front of groups and in front of crowds. I was always a leader and singing, leading the songs or whatever. So I think I've always been that way. But the other thing was, it's one thing to stand in front of a group, as I said earlier, to say I was sexually abused. It's another to say and write it in detail that this man took me into his office and bent me over his desk and had sex with me. You know, even saying that now is a little uncomfortable. Mm, right. Right. So, you know, to write it down and know that people were going to read this um, made it a little more uncomfortable for me. And the other thing was writing the book forced me to really relive every single moment. I, and that was unlike when I speak, I'm kind of doing a generic and I talk about it and, 
but having to write that book and recall sitting in the pew and watching him preach and hearing his voice again, all of those things while I was writing it were very, very difficult. I wrote every chapter in the book except for one. I had um, an old tape of his, of a sermon. It was on marriage and the sanctity of marriage. And it was a cassette tape. And I hadn't listened to it for a, since I last heard it. I had an old cassette player and I put it in because I wanted to write a chapter on, the, on that. Mm-hmm. And I listened to his voice and I just couldn't do it. I could not... So I stopped the tape about two minutes into the sermon, and I gave it to a friend of mine who was also uh, a writer. I shouldn't say also a writer, she wrote. And um, she listened to it, and I told her what I wanted to get from that chapter. It's called By Your Fruits You Shall Know Them. That's the chapter in the book. And she actually wrote that chapter. I kind of tweaked it. and But that was the only chapter I couldn't write. I just I couldn't do it. Um, the rest, some of them were difficult to write. Um, I think someone described my book in a very good way. One woman said to me, I read your book and the first part of the book, all I could do was think of that poor girl, that poor girl. And then I got to part two and all I could think of was you go girl, you go girl. <laughs> and that's okay. I, I need to get to part two. <laughs> yeah. I saw, I saw the book, um, <laughs> you know, that, that there's the abuse and then there's the hope and the healing. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that you're you're saying this as I'm writing my book. I I have hit that point where I don't want to write this particular section that I'm working on because I don't want to relive it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I and I have an editor and I've been talking with him about it and he's like, you just have to keep writing. Yeah. And and I'm and like, you will find I, I don't want to. Yeah, I get that. <laughs> you will find. At least I hope you will. And I did. There is, again, power of putting your voice to that page, and there's power of letting it go. And mm-hmm. as difficult as it is, and believe me, I do understand that, um, I, I can breathe now. I, I, I can breathe. It's out there. It's written. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad. You know, truth is powerful, and we need yeah. to tell our truth. And our stories are important. Your story is so vital and important to others. And just as mine is or anyone else's, they all may be different. They might be similar in some ways, but each of us have a unique story to tell and we need to tell our stories. Yeah, absolutely. Well, how long did it take you to write your book? Well, it took me a total of two years. Um, I thought I was done after a year (laughs) and then I gave it to my beta readers and I gave it to some editors and they said, nope, you need to go back and redo some of these things and rewrite a few things. So it took me a total of two years. Um, And I was, I would say to anyone writing a book, I was very open to criticism. In fact, I welcomed it because I knew two things. I wasn't actually a writer per se. I jokingly said my English teacher is turning over in her grave at this point. (laughs) I also knew that because it was a personal story that I needed a perspective from someone else from the outside to say, this doesn't sound right. Or, you know, I would write this differently if I were you. Yeah, And so I was very open to criticism and that helped me rewrite and put it in words that needed to be said. But I will say there were two parts in the book or two sentences that I had several people say I would change that and I didn't want to change it and I didn't change it. So it's still your story to tell, Yeah, you know, yeah. the way you want to tell it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm so glad you did. And I'm so glad I met you somehow on what Facebook? <laughs> I think it was Podmatch. Was it Podmatch? Podmatch. Okay. Yes. Sorry. Yeah. I lose track of where I've been. I, I know. I understand anymore. that. Yeah. Yeah. We'll give them a plug. Podmatch. <laughs> yes. Podmatch. Good, good place. Um, and I have met several good people there that I am so glad to have met. So thank you for being on my show. Thank you for sharing your story. What would you say to the listener today in closing who has been wounded in any way by someone in a church? 
First, I would say, again, it's not your fault. You need to understand that and you need to believe it. It took me a long time to come to that point. Secondly, I would say, learn all you can about gaslighting, manipulation, all those things that were done to you. And then thirdly, I would say, you need to tell someone. And if you ha- and I say that from someone who's took 27 years to say it, I would probably caution you not to tell someone in the church, talk to someone outside of the church. I think that's important. Um, those people, and I don't mean it like that is necessary, but people within the church are going to be vested in what happens. And they're going yeah. to have a personal relationship with this pastor or priest or rabbi, whoever it is, choir director. Um, and so it's going to be difficult for them to have a perspective. So if, you, if you're going to tell someone, and I highly say that your, your healing begins by telling your truth, um, seek someone outside of the church. But, yeah, start with a safe place. And healing and hope is possible. It doesn't always look like it is, but it is. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you again so much. That's the exact message that I always want the, the, the guests to communicate to those listening here today, that there is help and hope uh, for whatever you are facing. And so if something that we've shared here today has resonated with you listeners, please pick up a copy of Sandy's book. Again, it is called Let Me Pray Upon You. And that is P-R-E-Y, pray upon you as a, as a predator does. And um, her name again is Sandy Kirkham. And so pick up a copy of her book today. I'm going to be diving into mine this weekend. I have some alone time. And so I'll be enjoying that. And, and any of the other books and resources that we mentioned here today, I will list in the show notes. So you can pick up those if you're struggling through this, this season of, of healing and recovery from any kind of abuse involving a church. And I hope that you get the help that you need there. And thank you again for joining us each week here on the Starting Over Stronger show. And we'll see you again next week for more help as you divorce and hope as you are starting over stronger.